Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the AI for All podcast. I'm Ryan Chacon, and uh, with me today is my co-host, Neil Sota, the AI advisor to the UN and founder of AI for Good. Neil, how's it going? Hey, I'm stoked, Ryan. I'm actually really looking forward to our, our episode today because it's a dear and dear topic to my heart, which is education and, uh, well, how AI is a, a tool to help transform that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a lot that we're going to cover today. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about AI's impact in in the workspace itself. But um, before we jump into our conversation, I do want to introduce our our great guest, Tom Andriola, the Vice Chancellor and Chief Digital Officer at UC Irvine. Uh, Tom, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, let's kick this off and just learn a little bit more about your background experience and tell us what a Chief Digital Officer does at a university. My background is kind of an interesting blend. Um, one uh, early stage of my career in the consulting world, uh, then I jumped over and was a chief information officer. I like to refer to myself as a recovering chief information officer. Was then able to uh, do mergers and acquisitions and learned a lot about kind of integrating companies and putting business operations together on a global level. Uh, then became a general manager of software businesses, kind of the combination of understanding how businesses work and understanding the technology space. Uh, started then running software companies uh, when in my years working with Philips, a, a very large global company. And then about 10 years ago, um, I, I jumped over to the university world. So a lot of that experience uh, in the corporate world was in the healthcare sector. So the software and software as a service platforms were, were in, for healthcare customers. Came to the University of California, uh, where we do a lot of healthcare, but we also do education research, which is probably what people think of first. And so I had to learn a new sector in addition to continuing to, to serve the healthcare industry uh, and be kind of a thought leader there. Uh, really have learned a lot about how does education work, how to sponsor research work. And then, you know, what is it like to be a publicly funded organization and, and you know, blending kind of private sector and, 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 and uh, private and public sector thinking for uh, problem solving, right? Because our really complex problems require the public and private sector partners to work together in ways that we maybe haven't in the past. So it's been an interesting journey. Um, had a chance, you know, in those different experiences to uh, work and live on four different continents. And so, you know, I have this kind of perspective of the world of having seen it at a very global level, but then also seeing it at a very local level, which I appreciate. Yeah, that's fantastic. So how how is um how are you seeing kind of AI being used before we get into the workplace conversation, which I know is, is a big part of what we want to talk about today, but just in the university setting, how are you seeing AI kind of play a role or, or how is it being, I guess, is it more so focused on how it's being taught in the to, to students? Like where are you interacting with AI in the job that you do? Yeah, I think it's touching everything. I mean, I, I think you talk to most organizations, they're talking about, you know, a kind of a seminal moment where there's going to be an inflection point much in the way the internet created an inflection point for businesses, uh, you know, a, a generation ago, I, I think a lot of us, and again, it's not just if you're a technology leading, but if you understand new tools that create inflection points, you see this as one of those seminal moments. And so if I step to the university world, let's say the research and education side, there's going to be a tremendous impacting in, in the way uh, teaching and pedagogy works. Uh, there's going to be a, a tremendous way that we use this tool for the way that we actually run a campus. And, and running a campus is like running a small city right? with 37,000 students, 20,000 employees. Uh, you know, it's you know, you're running a small city. And so it's going to transform our thinking around that. Uh, it's these new tools are, are already transforming the way that we think about pushing the boundaries of discovery and research, how we interact with collaboration partners, be them other universities or the private sector. And if I jump over to the healthcare world, it's, it's changing already the way that we uh, interact with patients and the way that we think about patient care. 
So, you know, I think it's going to create a lot of change, uh, but it's a long game. I, I say it's like the Tour de France. Uh, you know, we're in the first stage. OpenAI may have won the, the first stage and, and, and have the green, you know, have the, have the green, uh, you know, the green shirt. But it's a long game. And I think you're going to see a lot of twists and turns on the way that this gets used, who emerges as real uh, with real differentiation around using it. And so I, I'm just excited for the next several years. A lot of organizations today, I hear the same question. Like, we know we should be doing something with AI. We just don't know what it is. And you have worked with a lot of, you know, diverse stakeholders, you know, the researchers, the educators, the students, alumni, workforce transformation, all these things. And you've actually put together a lot of great projects. I know you just launched Exotic GPT. I think everyone's just wondering, like, how did you do that? Like, what was your approach to trying to figure this out? There's one uh, constituency that you didn't mention, which is, you know, from my platform as chief digital officer, I also get to work with the private sector a lot. And so, you know, we had last fall uh, an event that we uh, hold annually uh, with the business community. So these are usually large uh, multinational companies. You know, think the Hitachis and the HPs of the world and the targets of the world. And I got a chance to listen to them talk for two days about what they were doing, right? Because they tend to move a little faster on this stuff than we do. And it really informed a certain uh, you know, approach, both institutionally, but I also believe that there's an individual journey for each and every one of us. And let me start there, right? So I think every one of us, with respect to having this new tool or set of tools available to us, has to go through a cycle that goes something like this. I've got to investigate it. I got to experiment with it. I got to learn it. I got to do some early kind of productivity hacking my own world with it. And then I figure out how I could use this in a broader business context and then how to scale it. I don't think you can skip any of those steps. I really don't. You know, and so part of you say, well, why did you launch Zot GPT is to get more people into that cycle, because I don't think you can have a, a work reimagined initiative that we have without a, a large percentage of your population getting over their initial fear and anxiety around these tools. And, you know, and so like when I get in front of audiences that are a little bit more on, on that side of the continuum, I'll say to them, like, look, here's a really easy first thing to go do. You all do Google searches. You could flip one button and you can now get your Google search alongside a, you know, a GPT type summary and just look at the results that come from those two things and then ask yourself, do I want to figure out which five links to, that I want to click into to, quote unquote, go through the cognitive exercise of putting together a summary? Or do I want to take what that summary that was just written for me? I said, just ask yourself that question, just to familiarize yourself with what can these tools do today? And then what do you think they're going to be doing a year from now? Anybody can do that. Right. And, you know, and so people come up and saying that was actually really pragmatic. I'm going to try it. I'm going to start doing that. And now it's really interesting to see how people evolve from that to now seeing things. What did ChatGPT do for us? One, it gave people kind of that it's okay to play. And, the big, and it also addresses the biggest fear that, that was expressed to me, which is if I put my data in this, do I lose it to you know, the open AIs of the world, the Microsofts of the world? And so we kind of put a wrap around and said, no, you don't have to worry about that. What you put in here, you don't have to worry about that going into the public domain if, if that's data that you care about. And then we explain to people how that works. So the initial launch is really much more about getting people onto the playing field. As we get more people on the playing field, what we're seeing is the emergence of those early use cases where we can create 
better outcomes are now starting to emerge. And then we're parlaying them back into share your story with others, because when they hear your story, they're now going to have a better idea what they might be able to. That's awesome. I think that's advice most organizations can actually put to use. I like the fact you addressed the the people challenge, because I think that's where, you know, I see a lot of stumbling around is the, the antsiness and the jitteriness around the technology and what's it going to do? Is it going to make a mistake? Do I get liable for that? You started an organization called AI for Good, right? Really trying to focus on the positives. I was on a call earlier this week and we were also talking about AI for all. You know, in some of what's happening and we were talking about a, a particular movement that's happening to try to make sure that AI is brought in in a responsible way. But, you know, in some of the governance around who's going to sit at the table and, and help make some of those decisions, create some of those structures. Uh, there are a lot of different voices and, and elements left out. I'm trying, I'm trying to be a little bit, you know, obscure here, but, you know, one of the things, especially being with a public institution is AI for all, right? And I brought up the point yesterday because uh, our Zot GPT is initially launched just for faculty and staff. And of course I'm getting the question, well, what about students? And there are some really good reasons why we want to kind of slow walk towards giving it to all students. But I'm one of the ones saying sooner versus later for equity reasons, because the what students are using it right now are either using an inferior version that's available in the marketplace or able to pay the $20 per month to get access to the latest model. That's an equity issue for an organization like ours. We need to level that playing field or we're going to have our own version of the digital divide or, you know, societal disparities that we've created around the next the next wave of technology. And I'm one of the voices saying we can't do that. We got to do a better job this time and not go through what we just experienced with the digital divide of the Internet for the last 20 years. Based on everything we kind of talked about, I'm curious if we if we talk a little bit more about the wider, I guess, group of organizations that you've had experience with, interacted with, and kind of seen AI impact over your career, how has AI impacted the workplace over, like, say, how has it changed from maybe five years ago to, to where it is today? And, and what are some of the struggles that companies are having to really leverage this technology um, just kind of across the board? Yeah. So I think if you go back five years ago, right, you're now talking about just pre-pandemic, where in 2024, you're talking 2019, when we talked about AI, and I always like to say, like, so when you, if you say AI, what do you really mean, right? You know, and so back then, AI for a lot of people was really about machine learn using machine learning algorithm type things for predictive, you know, for predictive purposes. We were dealing a lot with structured data, and you know, when we were talking about unstructured data. We were talking about natural language processing to try to figure out how to pull out the right types of elements out of unstructured data and put it into a structured format so we could use it in our machine learning models. Um, and, um, you know, that's really, really, that's where we were, right? But, you know, the introduction of generative AI opens up for, I think, all organizations, and I'll give you an example in a second, to use all of their data. Right. So if you look at a healthcare enterprise, a health delivery organization, which we are one, most statistics would say three to five percent of the data is structured. The other 95 to 97 percent is in an unstructured form, it means it's some types of textual blobs or unstructured type formats. 
So that means in 2019, most of our analytical models that we were using, whether they were traditional or advanced analytics, were, were only leveraging three to 5% of the entire data, you know, digital information that we were holding as an enterprise. So you got to think about that. We talk about patient outcomes, right? Or the same could be said about our student success initiative in terms of how we're using analytics to help support students in reaching their, you know, their academic and, and, and career readiness goals. Well, now all of a sudden we can open up to the other 95% of data. That is incredibly powerful if you think about it. And I think that's what one of the big things that's different is we were very, very limited in the type of data that we thought we could use and generate benefit from. And we had these limitations and those limitations have been completely lifted. Uh, and now what you're talking about is how do, do I even understand all the digital information that I have? How do I get it into buckets where I can put these models on top of it and start churning out answers, right? Or outcomes. How do I know whether these those outcomes are the right types of outcomes, whether they're equitable outcomes, whether they're responsible outcomes? So do I understand my data enough to understand about the ability to hallucinate or the ability to, to manage hallucinations? So the world has changed, I think, a lot. We're dealing with now, I, I think, um, magnitudes more of data available for these types of analytical frameworks and, and, and predictive algorithms. Um, and I think we're learning with this, like those that actually have really good data management strategies actually have a, a differentiated advantage to move faster in this now world of, I like to call it augmented intelligence. AI is augmented intelligence because I think we're very far away from automated decision making. And I think we're much closer to human in the loop type decision making, but now using better, more robust information to inform an individual to make the final decision. Yeah, that data management that you mentioned, I think is really important because we've talked about in the past about how can organizations not only get good data and access to data, but these companies that have lots of data, what how can they manage it properly to be utilized by new technologies, new tools um, to help them make better decisions? And I think that's a really big challenge for a lot of organizations. Uh, once they get the data is what how can they manage and what can they do with it? Um, but even if you take a step further back, by that, there are a lot of companies that listen to this that don't really know what kind of data they have access to, or you know, are kind of unsure how to get data that is going to be useful when they're able to um, bring in a a tool to to better analyze it with the advances of AI and things like that as well. And you know, it, and the whole digital movement, right? There's more and more of our world that is being captured now with a digital signal, and if that did what that digital signal is is more data. So I use the example uh, a few months ago, I was talking about, you know, basically how do we support students to succeed, you know, in a much more kind of uh, holistic and personalized way at our university. And then the last slide I use with the audience, because we were talking about, you know, the classroom learning data, we were talking about everything we know about their enrollment, we were talking about student life and all their activities and career readiness, their internships, their summer jobs, their competency building. And then my last slide was, the first metaverse class that we taught at the university. And I said, we're teaching a metaverse class and the data that's generated from students being in the metaverse, what they interact with, how long they stay, where they portal to, what their eye movements are. You know, this is all now new data. I doubt it's gonna be well-structured, but it's gonna to have to find a path into the where the rest of our student analytics data sits. And we're gonna to have to figure out what type of insights we can generate from it. And I just use that as an example of saying there's constantly new data coming online for us that we have to figure out 
how do you bring it into a usable form and combine it with the other data that you've already kind of aggregated and curated together? And so you've got to build a mechanism to be able to do that and have it be actually quite rapid and agile because that's how fast the digital world is moving for us. To be a successful business, you have to move at the speed of technology, right? And I think to your point, Tom, that's a big challenge because we're collecting lots of data. We're discovering new variables and datas. And we have struggle keeping up with that. Ironically, I, I was in a conversation this morning where you know, we were talking about this traditional analysis. You looked at six or seven variables, but now we have the ability to collect so much more data, especially around behavior and psychographics that now there's like 200 relevant variables. And the only way they can do this is with AI. But I think this alludes to some of the challenge you were talking about earlier, and that we've always talked about two big challenges, which was interpretability and interoperability. You know, interpretability for the audience is, you know, the AI comes up with some sort of, you know, answer or recommendation, but the business or domain experts don't quite know where that came from. And everyone was, that's fine. The technologists who built it understand, you know, how that came to be, but that's actually the interoperability issue and that we're seeing more and more that even the technologists don't know how that conclusion was arrived at. You know, it's, it's too much of a black box or it's just too convoluted for us as human beings to be able to track that many variables. But I think there's a third one now, which you started alluding to, Tom, which is prompt engineering, in that you talked about hallucinations. We're starting to see that poorly constructed prompts or missing parameters from your prompts causes problems. Like we've all heard the story about, I think it's happened a dozen times now, the lawyer goes into court, had chat GPT or something like that, research the cases it's going to cite, and made it up, right? Hallucinated. And I actually, you know, dug into this and the problem was the prompt. They're like, give me, you know, three or four cases that support my case strategy, right? So Gen AI doesn't know you need real cases. So it's just like, cool, I'll make some up. They're perfect fits for you, right? Now, shame on the lawyers for not doing the validation, but I think that's what we're starting to see more and more of is that it's about prompt engineering, but I think we're trying to learn how some of these things work, the parameters to it. We don't actually fully understand that. Is, is that something you're, you're starting to see, Tom? I love your example, and I think you're spot on. Um, I was in a discussion with a company that we work with, and it was with basically their leader of software development. And we got into a whole conversation about, you know, they've now plugged their model into, you know, one of the large language models. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, how does that work? Like, walk me through, you know, the interactions in your software, the call, the comeback. And essentially, at the end of his description, I said, you're working towards the perfect prompt. The quality of your answer ultimately comes down to, you know, the curation of the data that we've given you, your ability to large large language model, but what you're really... Um, what you're really trying to generate is the perfect prompt to give the best contextualized answer back to the requester. And then I was very interested to, to get some comments about how much is that costing him, right, to, to generate that perfect prompt, you know, ping back and forth. But it was, it, it really kind of brought home your point, which is it ultimately comes down, the quality of the prompt will determine the quality of, and the accuracy of the answer. And also, and, and his point to me was the con how contextualized the answer is. Moving from the earlier generation of technology, where if, if they didn't ask, ask the question the right way, it was going to tell you it didn't have an answer. Now, if you ask the question, 
you know, you have to understand the context of the question to provide the best answer, else you're going to get the second iteration, the third iteration, which is going to frustrate the end user. And I thought it was fascinating. And this is a relatively small software company, pretty, you know, small number of use cases. I would love to see what a large software company, you know, like an SAP or an Oracle or a Salesforce is trying to think about with this stuff because they're just so massive in terms of, you know, what they have and what they do. I can't imagine, you know, I would love to get inside and understand how they're trying to make this stuff work because that's where we're going to see a lot of this through the tools that we've already deployed in our enterprise. Right? Everybody's got their story about, you know, Salesforce, it's Einstein is what you're going to you know, bring into it. And for this company, it's something else. And Microsoft, it's Copilot. Um, and so everybody's got their story and that's where we're going to see a lot of it. And quite honestly, if we don't ask questions, it's going to be a black box. I've seen a lot more people now, especially domain experts, start to realize that they don't fully understand how some of the stuff they do works. Luckily, we have students, Neil, because that's where I go when I'm trying to understand how it works. I, I reverse mentor this thing. Uh, that's a great endorsement of why you have to hire uh, students, particularly especially when they graduate. Fresh, fresh ideas. They don't come the the legacy, legacy uh, infrastructure limitations. So, Tom, let me ask you. If, uh, we've been talking about some good topics here, but if if I'm listening to this and um, trying to understand and prepare my organization to leverage AI in the workplace, what what advice do you have for those companies on how best to approach it? What how, what should they be doing about analyzing the data they have access to, evaluating if the data is good or not, collecting more data, and then how can they evaluate what to do with that data and find tools to help them really start leveraging that data and that AI technology in the workplace um, across different industries? They're already doing aspects of this. And some companies might be 20%, some that might be 90%, because they're already using their data for analytics, but it might be traditional analytics, right? So I think the first question is, is do you understand the data that you have, where it lives, and how to get it into usable, you know, forms, uh, and then curated forms? And I think we're going to still have lots of debates over, do I just need to make it usable or what's the additional value of going through the curation steps, which can be very time consuming and, 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 and a lot of costs associated with. It's really interesting when you start seeing some of the comparisons, which is like, just give me as much data as you can versus give me the right data with the right curation around it. But I think for organizations, it's, you know, if they understand, and, and again, there's a continuum here of maturity. They, do they understand their data? Do they have it in usable form? And then I always like to point back to it's like, look, data is just data. It's really about, you know, creating better outcomes. You know, or as one executive put it to me, it's like, look, we want to make a better decision today than we did yesterday. We want to consistently make better decisions. We want to make them faster. And then we want to do them at an increasing scale. That's why we've organized our data and how we use it to create competitive advantage. And I really like that definition in the business context, because that's really what it is. It's not just about having data or having a great program or using AI. It's about creating a better business outcome for a customer, uh, you know, a friction, more frictionless experience for someone, you know, getting more done in the day, growing your business faster. It ultimately comes down to AI is just the latest tool we've been introduced to that might help us win in whatever business we're in. I love the way you put that, Tom, that you're really just trying to find a, a different way and a better way of performing the work. I see that for some some people, though, their perspective is you're trying to fix something that's not broken. Why are we even trying to meddle around with this? What's what's your experience in that? And how do you like handle those situations? 
Yeah, so that's so that's a you know, I think that's a that's a great example. When you focus on outcomes, if AI, if using some of these new AI tools doesn't create a better outcome, if if the customer doesn't get a better answer, right, or we haven't reduced the cycle time, then what's the real benefit of the tool? It, it's not right, and that's where that's I think that's how you separate the hype from the reality, which is at the end of the day, if you're in a business, it's about the metrics that you set for how to measure the success of that business. And so, you know, I pushed back a lot on that. It's like, so if we do this, what's going to be better? So I think, Neil, you and I talked about when we're together. It's like, we're trying to do clinical trials matching using these new tools. What's the benefit? Every percentage increase of, of clinical trial matching we do with our critically ill patients is hundreds of millions of dollars to our top line. CEO can wrap his head around that concept and say, yeah, I'll, I'll support that. Put a little bit of money to see if you can move the needle. And if it works, we'll double down on the investment. And I think that's what good business leaders are doing. The question is, is how much do they understand this technology or they have people around them who are basically saying, here's what we could try to do. And then, you know, do you have a format for experimentation? It's like, let's do this on a small scale and see if we can prove out that a better outcome could be generated. And then if we say, if we say yes, we can, now we got to figure out how to scale it and then take it over to the next business. Right. And, you know, and this is what you see when you sit down with a large, you know, multinational company or you talk to someone like Blackstone, who has hundreds of companies within the portfolio. They're trying to see where the wins are and then figure out how to scale those things as as fast as, and as broadly as possible. Yeah, that seems like a good advice for companies of all sizes. Yeah, that can go across go across sectors, industries as well. Absolutely. One of my mentors once taught me, you know, the, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. You know, and I, so I'm always looking at so who's already doing this. And again, you go back a generation ago, personalization. Who was the first to really do it? Amazon was actually the first to actually start building personalization by using the data. They built that company essentially uh, as a data platform that was, you know, buying, buying and distributing goods. But now everyone's things, everyone knows how to do personalization, right? But they were the early adopter. And so I'm constantly looking for, can I find the early adopters in different industries and then bring them back to our context and say, it's not so crazy, you know, uh, what we're talking about. We're just not there yet. And if we can get there, we will be the early adopter in our, in our environment. Where do you kind of see this all going? Just generally speaking with, um, have it just been things companies struggle with years ago that are now becoming easier to do with data and in the AI space? And then uh, as we get into more 2024 and, and beyond, is there anywhere that you're kind of seeing current struggles easing up and companies being able to leverage and, and handle and adopt these technology and solutions more easily? And, and just kind of what do you see the benefits long term? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think so. Um, I'll, I'll use a story. Uh, that I think I'm the only one old enough here to 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 actually have have been through it. So I remember when the internet you know came in you know came into play, and uh, the statements were made. And it actually a, a colleague reminded me of the statements like you know, well other than exchanging emails, what's the use case for the internet? There was a time when that was actually something that was said. Now we look back at it like that's ridiculous. Think of all the progress that's come out of the internet, the connectivity, the ability to to purchase things, to find information, you know, curated experiences. And so that's why I say I think this is that's a great analog because most of us can remember, um, you know, kind of the beginnings of the internet. And I think we're there now, and we're seeing just a very early stage of what these tools are going to be able to do. 
they're be able to augment our intelligence and actually, you know, reduce cognitive load, create better outcomes, maybe to help us do things faster with less, less friction. But I think that's only the beginning. I think we're going to see not just these models get better, but much in the way that, you know, when Uber came into existence, it wasn't one technology. It was the internet. It was GPS availability. It was the smartphone. It was, you know, financial pay, electronic financial payments. Uh, it was the ability to do rating. Uh, you know, you needed to bring different technology components together to create a superior solution that customers wanted. And I think that's what we're going to see here. It's not just about AI or generative AI. It's that plus what immersive experiences are continuing to evolve our ability to do. It's our ability to, you know, leverage, um, you, know, co you know, conversations and e experiences in a way that seem almost like almost human. I, I think we're going to see more and more contextualization, which again, I think we're at the very early stages of the contextualization of, I ask a question, but based on what you know about me to this moment, plus what the large language model behind put together gives me a contextualized answer that I'm looking for. And companies that are really smart are going to point me to where they want me to go next, which might be to buy their product or upgrade my certain subscription. And so this is, you know, and they're going to not necessarily need to differentiate between a physical experience and a digital experience. They're going to be much more blended. And again, that might be really difficult for me to wrap my head around, but to a 15 year old today who's 25, they're going to be a digital individual. They're going to have a physical and a digital um, persona that are going to be much more blended than mine is, for example. So what I see is that we're just, that's why I say this Tour de France is a great analogy, which is I think we're in early stages, but as we evolve, we're going to see great innovations through you know, creative ideation, but by combining technologies in a way. Um, I mean, think about the future media and entertainment. I mean, this is going to be a huge disruptive force, not just in terms of the creation, but, you know, the distribution, the experiential component, you know, you're going to be able to be in the movie, not just watch the movie. And that's going to be something that people are going to pay for, a premium for in the beginning. And then someone's going to bring it down to an affordability at a mass market level. And, you know, concept of sitting in a movie theater, watching a movie is going to be retro. Well, we're not, not that far away. I think it's Xtadia. You know, they have courtside seats to all the NBA games. They have a 270-degree angle camera. And if you have the service, I think they do it in partnership with the NBA, it's like you're sitting in that courtside seat watching the game. You know, and you can move your head around and the camera will show you the proper angle. It's, it's crazy. So, you know, we call that combination of convergence. And, you know, we, had, we did a previous episode with Leah DiBello, is a world-renowned cognitive science, but talking about how she's leveraging AI and the metaverse to effectively teach people creative thinking, critical thinking, improve their their, their risk management experimentation to come up with better decision making. It'll be it'll be fascinating to see what the world will be like in in ten years. It is well, you know, Neil. To that example, you know, Walmart has rolled out immersive training for their store managers to help them be better prepared for different scenarios. They saw enough business value. You know, both from the standpoint of scaling training, of not having to, you know, to have people just watch videos or fly them to centers, that they're now using kind of headset based training for store managers.
you know, and, and if you've ever worked with Walmart, uh, you know, they might be from the Midwest, but they are very technology savvy and they have incredible scale when they decide that they see something that works. And they're doing this at scale now. And I, and I think it's an incredible use case because it's not a sexy use case. It's a meat and potatoes. We've got, you know, X number of tens of thousands of stores. And those individuals need to be ready for the challenges that are confronting them each and every day that they go to work. It's a very, very kind of, you know, classic, how do we, how do we make the organization better story? I like your, your example there, like meat and potatoes, because I think too many organizations are looking for the sexy story. You know, I remember when we announced we were going to go into healthcare with AI, you know, I was advocating, let's just create a patient intake tool. Let's give doctors an extra five minutes with the patients that way. And it's just like, no, 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 that's not an exciting enough story. Let's tell people where to cure cancer. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, people don't think that's going to happen in three months. And then when it doesn't happen, they're all going to say this stuff doesn't work. It's all hype. But I think exactly kind of your meat and potatoes, that's the, that's the spots to be looking for those AI opportunities. Yeah, certainly. I mean, let me look at Amazon, right? You know, it's a juggernaut of a, you know, of an organization uh, on many levels now. What did they sell? The first thing, books. Couldn't get more boring. And of course, you weren't going to be able to do anything other than books, right? It's like, oh, well, someone's going to buy a pair of shoes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, the paradigm changed. And I think it's one of the things I love about business and I love about you know being in this country is, you know, we're always looking for the next thing that we can shift people's thinking on. Um, and, um, you know, but I'll come back to, you know, something I know that for Neil and I is very important, which is this has got to be something that's for all of us. You know, and, and that's going to be a real challenge here, right? Because, you know, the, the really, really creative people, they're going to go after that 1% of market because, you know, that's what raises the funding and, you know, that's what creates the valuation. But we got to figure out a way to, to make sure that this doesn't exacerbate the disparities that we're struggling with in our society. If people want to keep up with your work, Tom, and see the great stuff that's happening at UC Irvine, what's the best way for people to stay in touch? Yeah, so LinkedIn is where I kind of do all the, the cool things that we've got going on. Is kind of my main source of, of this kind of things that we're doing. Uh, I also have a podcast that uh, that uh, I hold, again, trying to bring people at the intersection of what this technology is is impacting in our society and you know, trying to bring thought leaders like yourself in to, to hear about it. So those are the best ways to kind of watch my journey. Yeah, appreciate it again. Excited to get this out to our audience. Um, as things continue to progress throughout the year, it'd be great to maybe have you back later on this year and talk about things that you've seen, things that we're seeing, and just continue the conversation because it's been a good one. Neil and Ryan, thank you for having me today. It was fantastic uh, you know, being able to chat with you on this.